Hampshire Hispites. Join us as we delve into the past and go on a journey to discover some of the county's best, and occasionally unknown, history. We'll be speaking to experts, as well as enthusiasts, asking them to reveal some of our hidden heritage, as well as share with you a few fascinating untold stories. on chocolate and early modern England. I'm Holly Marston, a PhD researcher at the Uni of Winchester and Historic Royal Palaces, and I'm researching Queen Mary II. I'm here with Andy Silen Macmillan. Andy is also completing her PhD at the University of Winchester. She looks at early modern queens, specifically focusing on the Queensland of Anna of Denmark. So hello, Andy. Hello. So just to recap on our previous two episodes, had other European countries started importing and consuming cocoa before it made its way into England? Yes, actually, it had a quite active uptake in the continent, primarily Spain. And a lot of that has to do with who was sending active explorers, as we call them, or even colonizing some of the areas that chocolate did come from during the period that it started becoming quite popular in Europe, which is 16th, 17th century. So chocolate, which we could say is the broad name for everything, you know, cocoa, chocolate, desserts, blah, blah, blah. Cocoa bean actually was what they found first. And it was made, prepared in a drink. And actually the explorer conquistador Cortes was introduced to it at a banquet held by Montezuma, which is everybody knows he's the Aztec king, very famous. You know, you hear Montezuma revenge and this and that. But the funny thing is he pretty much discovered it by accident. Montezuma thought he was a deity. So according to South American cultures, that's who was entitled to drink a cup of chocolate. So that's how he got introduced to it. At that point in time, chocolate, due to the attributes of the bean, had different uses. It was medicinal, and they used it even like an aphrodisiac. They knew about these properties, so that was one of the reasons why they reserved it. And to some cultures in South America, it was deemed as a magical type bean. But their value was quite high. Some of my records show that one bean was equal to a tamale, and this is according to 16th century Aztec documentation, and 100 beans was equal to a turkey. So it kind of gives you an idea of how valuable they were. They also traded them like they were currency. So Cortez, with his knowledge, takes us back to Spain, and they added sugar into it later, which gave it a more sweet taste. Chocolate without sweetening has a very bitter type taste, and it's acquired things. So unless you're brought up on it, which a lot of South American cultures are, Mexican hot chocolate is very different from normal American chocolate. They put nutmeg, they put cinnamon in it. They will put milk in it, but it's a different taste. So if you're not raised on it, most people don't like it. So sugar was added much later to suit the population and what they liked. So and that helped really boost it across the world. <laughs> so the Europeans gained access to chocolate through Spain. Can you give us just a quick overview of the links between chocolate and colonialism, just to recap? The biggest thing would be the conquistadors. What were they doing in South America? They were exploring, they were starting to colonize, they were going into 
One was gold. That was a big drive. The other one was what can we find here that we can take home? And we know more as time goes on with Columbus. Spain was also very, very big on spreading Catholicism. So when they would go places, they would also bring a monk or a religious person with them to help spread Christianity because they were a Catholic country. That was part of the rationale as to why they were exploring. And I'm not a Spanish historian, but I would not be surprised if a lot of their funding came from the backing of the church. It was not only the monarchs that backed them, they got a lot of money from the church. The top three people off the top of my head who I think explored the world in the 17th, 16th century, Columbus, Cortez, Drake, even though he was English, he was contracted by Spain to explore. One of the biggest documents, I would say probably important that I found while on this little discovery trip of chocolate and its introduction to England was in 1688, there is an act for charging and collecting the duties upon coffee, tea, and chocolate at the customs house. Basically, a snapshot of what was getting imported at the time and why they started taxing it. And it gives you an idea of how expensive it was. And it compares it to, there's a couple other things in here, but they break down how coffee is imported, the coconuts and tea. So briefly, Coffee was imported at a price of five pounds, 12 shillings, and then coconuts, and this is coconuts and cocoa beans, they were imported for eight pounds and eight shillings. Tea was five shillings. And for every pound of chocolate, it was eight pennies. So it kind of gives you an idea of how much each thing was worth. Also in this document, they talk about nutmeg, and then there's another one called two-thirds of duty repaid on expectations. I mean, it's very detailed in how they collected the funds, where they went, what they were for. And it gives you an idea of where they were coming from and who was bringing them in. So yeah, it's very interesting. Definitely. And so there was kind of, I guess, a self-awareness amongst people in the country and people in power that chocolate was the new rage. So why why do you think that it needed to be taxed. What pursued the monarchs to tax chocolate? The crown has a lovely history of not getting as much money from places as it wants. I'm more familiar with Tudor history than Mary II, but it obviously was to keep the money flowing. Mm-hmm. They needed to make money at the end of the day. So people are realizing, oh, I can make a buck. And then we have this rising you know, middle class who's also wanting to make money. But then we also have the crown that's like, well, we need to make money too. So what's one of the easiest ways for them to make money? Tax. They exported wool still, but they didn't import at that point in time something that was going to get eaten up like buttons. I mean, tacking it on with tea is probably the smartest thing for them to do. Yeah. And I guess making chocolate legislated restricts who can have chocolate. And it plays into the idea that it was a product only for the rich. So have you found any evidence of how it was used and who it was consumed by? Yes, I actually found a couple really great sources. One, it's called Shakespeare's Folgers History, and it goes through all kinds of history on coffee, on chocolate, and then they have a really, really nice tight library that's nothing but manuscripts. For example, there's about five, six books that we know of today that have 
kind of like advertising, but it's not advertising, but it's promoting the use of chocolate and how to make your hot chocolate drink with recipes. It was one of the earliest ones I found. I found a lot of drink recipes, but I I think I found one where they actually were cooking, but they made like a cream. So they weren't quite there early 17, I would say 16th century, where this, they were actually putting it in cakes yet. But it was just very interesting to see that the information that they did have was on drinking. And that was basically straightforward. And just a note for the listeners, mm-hmm. references and links to some of these recipes in the episode notes as well, like the images discussed in other episodes that we've done. So one of the books, and this is also gives you an idea of what they were calling chocolate in Europe was in William Hughes book, which was dated uh, 1672. Interestingly, he was a pirate and a botanist. He went and he explored, but he was also a plant nut. (laughs) So in his little book, The American Felicitian, he refers to chocolate as American nectar. And the tree that came from was the cacao nut tree. That contained a recipe on making a compilation, a cup of chocolate. So I have that listed in my notes with the recipe, which is quite interesting. There's another one I found from 1700. And it this was, like I said, one of the only recipes I found where it wasn't really a drink, but it was like a cream where they took a pint of cream, they boil it. And then here they actually said to put a big spoon of chocolate, let it boil. Then while stirring, you put in a yolk of egg, which is interesting. Let it stand. And then milk, they ask for milk and the chocolate, and then it kind of disappears. It goes to another page, but that page was not included. But so this one, then you can tell they're adding egg, which is different than the other ones. But there's no sugar, interestingly enough, at all. Just an egg. The main difference between how we consume chocolate today to how it was consumed in the 17th century is that it wasn't eaten. Yeah. And then about 1770, 1779, there's another recipe, which is a bit, a little bit difficult for me to read exactly, but they add a vanilla this time. So now they're starting to alter the taste of it, but it gives the measurements and everything in there. And just for the podcast listeners, where can you find this kind of information? I have found a lot of this information on a couple places. One was, it's called Folger EDU, and it's the world's largest Shakespeare collection. That's where the database library is for all the manuscripts. And most can click on them and you can get access to. And then there was another site, the Discovery of Chocolate, and that was off digital collections for the classroom. Great. Just in case anyone wants to try and make any of these recipes. That egg one sounds very interesting. I actually found a recipe dated 1631 for Spanish hot chocolate. And this one actually, the Spanish have vanilla and they have some chocolate, but it's to to taste. They're not just adding the, the sugar in there to add the sugar. They're adding it for taste. And then there's a chocolate spice one. And it says you can add it to any chocolate recipe where they take nutmeg, a natto, which I'm not sure that is, and then cinnamon, and then just cayenne pepper, wow. cloves, any seed. So yeah, and that was one thing that was interesting. And a lot of the South American recipes, they put chili, not necessarily a spicy chili, but they, they do put chili spice in their chocolate. Today, even chocolate candies down there have chili on them. 
So, yeah, it's a very different palette regionally compared to Europe. It's one of the biggest things I noticed living here and living back home is uh, the sweet range and even the savory range is completely opposite. What other things, other foodstuffs have been through a similar journey as chocolate? I know the sweet potato went on an interesting journey and also corn, which we call maize over here. That was also a byproduct of exploration and colonization. So that was one. And apparently the potato, just the generic potato did not come from England and it originated in the Americas. So a lot of the importation of these goods came from the crown. Yes. Commissioning people to go and find them and bring them back. What do you think that meant? What kind of statement was the crown making in distributing foodstuffs like this and distributing cocoa amongst the elite in England? I want to say the crown was trying to make a name for themselves in a way. And they were also trying to show that they could compete with these merchants that had arisen up through, you know, social class that they too could have a name in trade. And then they were also competing on a global scale. They had Spain, they had France. Everybody at that point in time was going all different places to gather things up and bring it back, make money, and then keep expanding their empires. So this period that we're looking at history-wise, it's on that brink of massive expansion of countries and colonization. Because they were discovering things that they didn't have at home and they would bring home and it'd be like, wow, this is really cool. So they were all in a, a bit of a global contest as to who was going to beat the person to the next thing. So it was a political move. A lot of it was very political. It was also a source of power for the monarchies that were running the countries as well. The more they traded, the more money they gained, the more powerful they would be, the more diplomatic power they gained. So another big thing that we see during the early modern period is these countries are just gaining land, trade routes, money, and they're getting powerful. And of course, at the same time, they're building up their armies as well. So yeah. It's a very, very global enterprise happening here in, in kind of in its infancy, but it's getting there. Definitely. And does yeah. this research that you've done for this project on chocolate, does it connect to your PhD research in any way? There's a little bit here and there. There wasn't very much account book recipe culinary fun in it, but I am finding with Anna's account books, there's a lot of detail in them and there's a lot of information on where money comes from especially in her dowry settlements and some of the grants she's given. So that'll be interesting. I already know offhand sugar was one of the things she was able to collect revenue on. Barley even from Scotland was one, but it'll be interesting to look at her later account books to see if chocolate or any of these other items that we've talked about show up as a, something she can have a percentage of the tax to have for her income while she was queen. Definitely. So. And on a yeah. final note, will you be trying any of these recipes for yourself? I think I'm going to try the Spanish one to see how close it is to Mexican hot chocolate. You know, I mean, I can go make a phone call and someone can send me Mexican chocolate, but I want to try the Spanish one just to see how different it is. Yeah. No. Well, thank so. you so much for coming and talking with me. And thanks to our listeners for listening to this special podcast series on chocolate in early modern England. We thank all of our contributors and hope you all learned a lot about one of the nation's favourite sweet treats. So thank you, Andy. You're most welcome.
hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. If you would like to find out a little bit more about what we've been talking about, then please visit the website www.winchesterheritageopendays.org or click on Hampshire Hispites and there you'll find today's show notes as well as some links to more information. Thank you.